Hello, I'm Natalie Davis. This is number 0575, the Stuff File Program with Peter Anthony Holder. And it comes to you right now. The following program is brought to you in living color. Now, it's time for an eclectic mix of interviews and some of the oddest news stories you'll ever hear. It's the Stuff File Program with Peter Anthony Holder. Hey there, hi there, ho there. Peter Anthony Holder here with you, and yes, this is indeed another edition of the Stuff File Program, number 0575. And coming up on this edition of the Stuff File Program, investigative journalist Ivor Davis, author of Manson Exposed and also The Beatles and Me on Tour, is back on the show talking about The Beatles, Elvis, Manson, and being a witness to the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. I suddenly heard balloons popping. I thought they were balloons, but they weren't because there was screaming. And I was 15 yards behind. I kind of pushed my way in and there was Bobby lying on the floor in the arms of Ethel. She was screaming, give him air. And it was, you've got to imagine it was bedlam. It was women screaming, not again. And Bobby lying there looking pretty awful and Ethel desperately looking for a doctor. Peter Franklin, the Gabby Cabby, shares a slice of the Big Apple from his yellow mobile conveyance lounge. He's always been a great ambassador of New York City. Has that changed during this pandemic? Don't get near this place. I wouldn't take your money. Keep it in your pocket. No, I mean, New York is, to put it bluntly, it's a real crap house right now. As my mother used to say, this too shall pass. So it's all gonna work out. I mean, those things happen in cycles. But right at this moment, New York, really, and I bet you're surprised to hear me say it, is dirty, filthy, mean spirit. It's just terrible. It really is. And there's lots and lots of stuff file news and, of course, an idiot of the day. The guest later, the person who told you this was show number 0575, was Natalie Davis, the founder and PD of Verdant Square Radio, one of the homes of the Stuff File Program. Thank you very much, Natalie, for doing the guest late on this edition of the Stuff File Program, a show that is listener-supported, fan-funded radio that depends on you for our success. Join us at patreon.com to help make this show an even bigger and better radio experience. Well, let's get right to the stuff, shall we? A Providence, Rhode Island firefighter is facing criminal charges after a motorcycle accident. 39-year-old Joseph Bouchard was riding on his motorcycle when he struck a fire hydrant. That's right, a firefighter crashed into a fire hydrant. Then he fled the scene. When police responded to the scene shortly after midnight, they were able to collect one very important clue as to who was responsible for the accident. They located his injured girlfriend. She was taken to Rhode Island Hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Witnesses said she was on the back of Bouchard's motorcycle before he fled the scene, leaving his girlfriend behind. Police say investigators were able to track Bouchard back to his home due to evidence left at the scene, like, I guess, the girlfriend. Upon arrival, they found he sustained serious injuries. He was taken into custody and then transported to Rhode Island Hospital. Bouchard was arraigned on two felony charges. He was also charged with a misdemeanor for a DUI and was cited for leaving the scene of an accident with damage, 
uh, to highway fixtures and also leaving a lane of travel. So, apparently, in Rhode Island, chivalry is dead, and I'm assuming so is that relationship. And by the way, the firefighter, who again ran into a fire hydrant, is now out of work. So, both his career and his love life have been extinguished. I mean, she's probably going to be an ex-flame. Yeah. Shoplifting can be a real hassle, especially carrying out all that tantalizing loot from the store. And what if you want to shoplift something bulky, like lawn equipment? You're not going to fit that under an overcoat, and right about now it's a little too hot for an overcoat anyway. One enterprising woman in Alabama solved those little inconveniences by doing the most obvious thing. Police say 42-year-old Gwendolyn Braswell was behind the wheel of a Pontiac Sunfire that drove into a Home Depot Friday morning. The bizarre incident was recorded by surveillance cameras inside the store. Police identified Braswell as the suspect and asked the public for help in determining her whereabouts, which is how she was eventually captured. Braswell is facing multiple charges, including burglary, criminal mischief, and theft. It is believed that Braswell had first staged merchandise in the store before returning to pick up the goods, a leaf blower and a dehumidifier. That's some good planning right there. After backing in through the store's front sliding doors, which were clipped by the Pontiac, Braswell navigated her way down an aisle, but not before plowing into a display and scattering customers. Investigators connected Braswell to the brazen heist thanks to witnesses who took down the Pontiac's license plate and recorded video. Police say Braswell used the vehicle without the owner's permission. Braswell's rap sheet includes a burglary conviction and an arrest for possession of narcotics and drug paraphernalia. I can't figure out if this is a well-thought-out crime or the laziest shoplifter in history. In any case, you can see the video of her literally driving through the Home Depot store, as I have posted it on the Stuff File fan page on Facebook. As for the person whose car she borrowed, the damage to the vehicle is going to be an interesting explanation to their insurance company. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. The Krone Circus in Munich, Germany, has come up with a stinky idea for making extra money during COVID-19 restrictions. Selling jars of excrement from its 26 lions and tigers at a price of $6 each. While some buyers opt in to support the circus or to offer jars as a prank, and by the way, that's the sign of a true friend, a friend who would no longer be on my Christmas card list. Others are using them to repel pests, said lion tamer Martin Lacey. I am told it keeps cats away from the garden and it keeps the animals away from the car where they eat all the electrical cables. Some of the funds go to a charity that improves living conditions for captive animals. You know, I'm guessing some people have been quarantining in their homes way too long. They're either watching way too many infomercials or scrolling online and are easily swayed to literally buy way too much crap. Yeah. People living around Olten, Switzerland, got a surprise on August 14th when it began snowing cocoa powder. Strong winds that morning distributed the cocoa dust, 
from a malfunctioning ventilation system at the Lind and Springley chocolate factory nearby, delivering enough to cover at least one car. The company offered cleaning services, but no one took them up on the offer. The ventilation system has been repaired. I'm going on the assumption that no one took them up on their offer because they were planning on eating the cocoa powder. So here's my question. Even though you know this stuff is coming from a nearby world-famous chocolatier, doesn't collecting cocoa powder coating your community like snow far exceed the usual five-second rule? Smooth, flowing, luscious, chocolate like no other. Flowing indeed. And finally, in this section of Stuff File News, before we get to our first guest here in this edition of the Stuff File program with me, Peter Anthony Holder, Sheriff's deputies in LaPush, Washington, said they received a report of a suspicious person trying to rent an airplane without a pilot's license or insurance at the Jefferson County International Airport on August the 18th. The man, later identified as 59-year-old Richard Jordal, then tried his luck at Tailspin Tommy's, another plane rental business at the airport, and was again refused, but surveillance video showed Jordal returning later to steal the keys of a Cessna airplane, which he fueled up before taking off and flying erratically. Business owner Natalia Yeshrina and her husband watched the plane on radar. She said altitude would change dramatically from 5,000 feet to 2,000 feet, up and down and then doing loops and doing twirls. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Authorities said a possible plane crash was reported at around 10.30 p.m., but no wreckage could be found in the heavily forested area that evening. A U.S. Navy helicopter crew returned the next morning and found the plane with Jordal unconscious inside. He was taken to a hospital in critical condition. I guess this would definitely come under the heading of a Darwin File starter kit because someone who would do something like this, who can't fly, definitely has some sort of death wish. But, on another note, why would anybody want to rent a plane from a place called Tailspin Tommy's? Now, I know that Tailspin Tommy was once a popular comic strip literally a hundred years ago, and it was also an early successful film serial in the 1930s, but really? It's like, Something else I've mentioned on this show several times in the past. Why on earth would you name a luggage company after Amelia Earhart, especially when one of the major fears of air travelers worldwide is having their luggage lost? These things just boggle the mind. Anyway, let's get to our first guest. Here in this edition of the Stuff File program with me, Peter Anthony Holder. Investigative journalist Ivor Davis is back on the program. You may remember last year we talked to him around this time marking the 50th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders. Ivor was promoting his book, Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. Well, that book is now coming out in paperback. But there's also another reason to have Ivor on. He was also on the show back in 2015 promoting another book, because in the summer of 1964, the Beatles embarked on a record-breaking, pandemonium-inducing tour of America and Canada. And Ivor, then a young reporter for the London Daily Express, 
traveled with the Beatles as the only British newspaper writer invited on the entire tour. That turned into his book, The Beatles and Me on Tour. And the reason we're having him back is because it was during that time that the Beatles met Elvis, and this month is the 55th anniversary of that. Ivor joins us via Skype from California once again. Hi, Ivor. Hello, and thank you for having me on your show, Peter. Much appreciated. Thank you for being on the show once again. And full disclosure, you actually got in contact with me and said, hey, let's chat again, and I was more than happy to have you on. Uh, so many things to talk about, but let's, um, and, and by the way, anybody who wants to listen to our previous conversations, uh, they can go to show number 0521, which was when we talked about the Manson family, and way, way back at 0287, where we talked about the Beatles, because you can listen to those interviews in our archives. But I want to talk about uh, one of the things we just barely touched on when we talked about the Beatles last time, and that is a year later, a year after that summer of 64, in 65, they met up with Elvis Presley. And you were with them when that happened. Now, you had already been around with them a lot, as I mentioned, on that full tour. Uh, you were a young Brit. They were four young British lads. You you bonded pretty well. As a matter of fact, in our last conversation, you talked about how you used to play Monopoly at 3 o'clock in the morning in hotel rooms. So you bonded with those guys. So my first question is, what was, because he had a lot of interesting peccadilloes, what was your first impression of Elvis Presley? And what was the Beatles' first impression of Elvis Presley when they met? Well, they were in awe of meeting Elvis. They tried to put it together in 1964, but Elvis was making movies. The Beatles were racing around from L.A. to Montreal and other other cities. And it never happened in 64, even though Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager, and Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, met several times at the Beverly Hills Hotel to try and make it happen. Well, fast forward to 1965, August. And I got a call from Mal Evans, one of the roadies, saying, get over here. We're going to see Elvis. So I raced over and joined the Beatles as we landed or arrived at Elvis's house. Now, now I must tell you this, Peter, that I saw a letter that Brian Epstein wrote in which he said, we don't want to make a big hype of this. We don't want any photographers any tape recorders, even any reporters, which was kind of ridiculous, considering this was a meeting of two great rock and roll legends, although maybe the Beatles weren't quite legends then. So we show up at the house, and believe it or not, when we walk in and John kind of bounces in, leads the pack, the Beatles had had a few little uh, cups of tea on the way in the limo. Cups of tea is kind of uh, another way of saying a, a few little puffs of of marijuana. So they were feeling no pain. When we got to Elvis's house, there, sitting on a white couch, was a guy who looked like Elvis. He had those uh, uh, huge uh, ca carpet, those kind of carpet uh, uh, sideburns, which were really quite amazing. And, and basically, they stood around for 10 minutes, and nobody did the introductions, which was amazing. They were in awe. They didn't want to go up and introduce them. Elvis was sitting there flicking his remote control television with no sound. 
And for 10 minutes, it was like six guys waiting for somebody to introduce them. Finally, Elvis jumps up, says, hey, you guys, it's getting late. I'm going to bed. Didn't you come to jam? And of course, that broke the ice. So they finally started making music. They played um, Little Richard music, but no Beatle music. And the ice was broken. The Beatles got along with Elvis pretty well. But you've got to realize, and I didn't realize at the time, Peter, and it's only go on so long. I didn't realize at the time that, don't forget, Elvis had been knocked off his perch as the number one king of rock and roll by these upstarts from Liverpool. So he was a little bit upset by that. At the same time, Elvis was making three movies a year, the same cookie-cutter movies that he made every year with a different leading lady. The Beatles come along, they make one, one, one movie, A Hard Day's Night, it's a smash hit. So there's that element of resentment going on. Anyway, they got along fairly well after that, and we hung around for another hour after the, after the impromptu concert, and they said they would get together again. They never did. And you say you hung around for an hour after the impromptu concert? The little impromptu con concert, how long was that? Well, that was about 15 to 20 minutes. And then the Beatles started chatting to Elvis. And they talked about things like, and I was sort of was the fly on the wall, eavesdropping, trying not to look too obvious. They talked about the fear of flying, because I think Buddy Holly had died not long earlier in a plane crash. They talked about um, making music, making records. And I think Elvis was a bit irritated when Paul McCartney said to him, well, you know, Elvis, I wish you'd make the kind of music that we love, the earlier music. That kind of the inference was that Elvis was making crappy stuff. Hmm. Well, Elvis was making crappy movies. So that that upset them a bit. But the only thing that got them all back on track was somehow the conversation turned to Peter Sellers, who is the great, who was the great English comedian actor. And the Beatles and Elvis had seen the movie Dr. Strangelove and how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, which came out a year before. And somehow that kind of brought the Beatles and Elvis together because, believe it or not, Elvis had a great sense of humor. Many people don't know it. And the Beatles had a wicked sense of humor. So they they sort of merged and, and, and talked about the love of Peter Sellers and that movie. But other than that, it was not, um, not a really great meeting. And as I said earlier, Peter, no photographs whatsoever. Now, you mentioned that they were in awe of Elvis, but I'll, I'll ask the first question again. What was your first impression of Elvis when you saw him? Well, first of all, he looked like the image of Elvis, as I mentioned, these sort of heavy sideburns like shag, shag carpeting. And he had little, uh, a little a teenager, it looked like it, running around him. And, and it turned out to be Priscilla. So he introduced Priscilla to the Beatles. Um, I must tell you that I had seen Elvis before. I had interviewed him on the set of the Paramount Studios for one of his movies with, I think, Anne Margaret. And so I'd met him and, and had a little conversation with him, but he was very, very, very awkward. He kept calling me sir, and I was maybe three or four years younger than him. And um, the conversation wasn't a good interview. And I'll tell you what happened. 
So after 15 minutes, a guy from the film set came in and said, Al, they need you on the set. And Elvis got up and I said goodbye. I said, by the way, I'd love to come and watch Elvis filming. And uh, the guy said, no, no, Elvis gets a little bit nervous when he has outsiders watching him. I said, fair enough. Goodbye, Elvis. Lovely to meet you. And I jumped in my car. Elvis left. And then as I was leaving the studio, I looked in the parking lot and there was Elvis playing football with the Memphis Mafia. So that kind of gives you some idea of Elvis did not like outsiders. And that's why he surrounded himself, as you know, with all these guys, these friends from Memphis known as the Memphis Mafia. And that was my impression of Elvis. And I'll just throw one more thing in. Several years later, I went to see Colonel Parker at the Hilton Hotel in Las Vegas. It was an Elvis concert. And you won't believe this, but Elvis was was tied down to a slave labor contract to perform at the at the Hilton Hotel, the International Hotel became the Hilton Hotel. And he did. And you won't believe this. I'm going to ask you this, Peter. Take a guess at how many shows Elvis performed at the Hilton Hotel in Las Vegas under the contract that Parker made for him. Take a guess. Over what period of time? Over, say, five years. Five years? Yes. Um, I would say more than 100 shows a year. Yes, you're very good. A good choice. 837 concerts at the hotel. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway... The end, ending my story, I was at one of the late concerts. Elvis was sweating. Elvis was looking very overweight. Elvis actually forgot the lines of one of his hit songs. And there was a photographer sitting next to me called Colin Dangard from Australia. He took out a camera and started taking pictures of Elvis, the overweight Elvis. And within 20 seconds, three security guys grabbed Colin and dragged him out. So that was the end of of what I saw of Elvis. And then very soon afterwards, as you know, and as the world knows, Elvis at the age of what, 42, died in the bathroom of Graceland. And that's the sad finish to Elvis's career, although he was a magnificent performer. Going back very quickly to the meeting of Elvis and the Beatles, the one thing that those two entities had in common was they had a lot of screaming teenage fans who would follow them, who would go to their concerts, who would scream and scream and scream while they were performing. Did any of them talk or commiserate over the idea that, you know, they perform on stage and, and, and sometimes can't even be heard? No, they didn't actually talk about the screaming fans. But what was interesting is when we showed up at this private secret meeting, there were about 150 girls outside the house. And this was a secret meeting. So later on, we learned that Colonel Tom Parker had told somebody in the Elvis fan club and they tipped off some fans and the fans showed up. So to answer your question, um, I know for sure, because John Lennon told me this, that when they finished the first American tour and the second American tour, John said, we've had enough. He, he said, we, are, we come along and we perform like, performing fleas and and they don't come to hear us they come to see us and i think there was an element maybe the similar similar element and you know you know elvis um that elvis had the same problem people came along to hear him or did they come along to see him to say we saw them we saw him in the flesh 
it was an experience. The Beatles didn't like it that way. We are talking with investigative journalist Ivor Davis. He is the author of a couple of books, The Beatles and Me on Tour, and also Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. We'll take a quick break, and we'll continue talking with Ivor here on The Stuff File Program with me, Peter Anthony Holder. Don't go away. The Stuff File Program is a listener-supported, fan-funded radio show that depends on you for our success. Join us at Patreon.com to help make this show an even bigger and better radio experience. Sign up and find out about our rewards program. Being a patron doesn't have to be a long-term commitment. There's absolutely no obligation. You could join today and end whenever you'd like. But the time we have your support would be so greatly appreciated. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show and even your ideas for rewards. Join us for the ride. Join us at patreon.com slash the stuff file program. Here's a penny for your thoughts from the stuff file program coming to you from Montreal, Canada, a country that doesn't have pennies. And the stuff file program is heard everywhere, including on Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, just to name a few. You can find buttons for Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio right on the website at thestufffile.com. And whichever platform you listen to the program on, please feel free to leave a review of the show on their site. It would be greatly appreciated. We are talking with investigative journalist Ivor Davis. He is the author of a couple of books, and we've had him on the program before. As you mentioned, he was on show number 0287 and 0521. You can find both of those shows in our archives and listen to those as well. He's the author of The Beatles and Me on Tour and also Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. Uh, let's change gears a little bit and uh, talk uh, about the other story, the Manson story. Um, as we mentioned, we had you on the program last year talking about this as well. Uh, now, a paperback edition is coming out, and also, I believe, an audio edition is coming out of the book, Manson Exposed. Is there anything different or anything additional uh, from the book that came out in hardcover last year to what is now coming out in, in paperback? No, there isn't much difference, but I, if I may bring um, your listeners' attention to the fact that in the United States, I'm, I am in pretty well every episode of a new, a new documentary, six-hour documentary made by the Oscar-winning uh, filmmaker Leslie Chilcott called Helter Skelter, the Ma the, An American Myth. And what I say is anybody who's interested in the whole Manson Beetle phenomena because there is a connection, as you know. Um, the show is terrific. It captures the 60s. It captures everything that happened in that awful period of, of American Hollywood history. So, uh, and you will, you will get the opportunity to see me popping up from time to time, offering whatever I offer, a little bit of commentary, a little bit of the way it was. And, and, and so what with... My, my book in paperback, my book in audio, and my little appearances on that show, um, there's still a lot more to be gleaned. But to answer your question, the book in paperback is pretty much the same as the book in hardback. And we should mention that the uh, documentary you referred to, that series, that six-part series, Helter Skelter and American Myth, is uh, playing on Epix TV. As the saying goes, check your local listings. 
Um, and as I also mentioned earlier, uh, that whole Beatle Manson connection, you can go to uh, our show on in our archives at uh, number 0521 because we discussed that then. One of the other things we touched on uh, very briefly when uh, we chatted last time is the fact that you were actually at the Ambassador Hotel the night that Robert Kennedy was killed in the kitchen downstairs after making that speech. Where exactly were you in the hotel at that time? Well, I had been covering Bobby Kennedy in the, in the summer of 1968. I think it was, or was it 69? I tell you, uh, whatever year it was. It was, it was 68. Uh, 68, okay, yeah. then I was right. It was in the summer of 68. I traveled with Bobby Kennedy throughout California because everybody in London and anywhere around the world thought he was going to become the next president. And winning California was a vital way to the uh, to the uh, convention. And so after Bobby uh, acknowledged that he'd won California, um, he beat out uh, Eugene McCarthy and so we we got to know him. We travelled with him. We'd seen the way people were adoring him. Uh, it, it, I mean, his hands were were, were were swollen and bruised from all the hands that the, he shook. And so he made the speech and said, "On to Chicago." And then we followed him to a press conference that was going to be in another room. And as we followed him through the uh, the kitchen, and they took him through the kitchen. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was a shortcut. I suddenly heard balloons popping. I thought they were balloons, but they weren't because there was screaming. And I was 15 yards behind. I came to the door of the kitchen. Um, Stephen Smith, who was Bobby's brother-in-law and a campaign manager, tried to stop me coming through. I said, what's going on in there? And, and, and I kind of pushed my way in. And there was Bobby lying on the floor in the arms of of Ethel, she was screaming, give him air. And then five yards away, there was a figure, a small figure under about six bodies who was struggling. And it was, you've got to imagine it was bedlam. It was women screaming, not again. And Bobby lying there looking pretty awful and Ethel desperately looking for a doctor. And it's one of those signs. And by the way, my photographer who was a famous photographer now called Harry Benson who was traveling with me on the Bobby trip was on the kitchen table taking pictures I guess he was doing his job of course he was doing his job and that image is is forever etched in my mind one that I you know you cannot get rid of and then we went to the hospital we hung around at the hospital and then um I think it was um Mankiewicz um his um his press man came up uh, several hours later and announced that Bobby was dead. Wow. Uh, when every, every time I talk to you, you have fascinating stories, and uh, you usually start them off by saying, I got assigned to this, I got assigned to that. That doesn't happen overnight. So when did Ivor Davis become, and I'm now doing air quotes, Ivor Davis, like, when did you become the person that people said, this is taking place, let's send Ivor? Well, I was the West Coast correspondent 
in America uh, uh, for a bureau of the London Daily Express. And the London Daily Express then was a huge newspaper with over four million readers a day. I had the territory to myself. It was remarkable. And the stories unfolded on the West Coast. We had a bureau in New York. We had a bureau in Washington. We had 30 bureaus around the world. So it was it was a big operation. But I was so lucky to be given that assignment that that it, it, it was the, the country was my playground. It led to covering Bobby Kennedy, covering this B movie actor. What was his name now? Ronald Reagan, I think, who became <laughs> governor, who became governor. And then guess what? He became president. Oh, my God. And and during that time, I did those big stories. I did and I did a lot of Hollywood stuff. And one of my fun stories was my travels with uh, Muhammad Ali. And I went to see Muhammad Ali at his house in Los Angeles. We got on very well. He said, I, he said, for some reason, I'm going to take you around and show you my town. I mean, I knew his town, but I said I wasn't going to complain. So he jumped in his convertible Rolls Royce and off we went down busy Wilshire Boulevard near where he lived in L.A. I sat in the back. Uh, Mohammed was driving the car and his wife was uh, was sitting next to him. And and the story that I love is we were on Wilshire Boulevard. It's like being in I don't know what Montreal's main drag is or New York's main drag of busy traffic, Wilshire Boulevard. And we are driving along with me in the back seat, with Muhammad Ali in the front seat driving, and we sh- suddenly a gigantic garbage truck pulls alongside Muhammad Ali, and they see him, we're at a traffic light, the guys jump out of the car, they leave their, their, their huge truck running in the middle of the road, all the motorists are hooting like crazy, they go over to Ali. They He looks at them. He jumps out the car. He hugs them like they were old friends. And everybody's saying, move the bloody truck. Uh, but these guys are in heaven because Ali is their hero. And he is having fun with them. And after about three minutes, he gets back in the car and leaves. And, and, and the traffic continues. I've never seen such joy in the eyes of people who see Ali uh I mean, I've seen a lot of movie stars, but Ali drew the most joy, um, ecstasy, or call it whatever you like. And that was a scene that, again, I never, never will forget. And I happen to have a great picture of me in the car with Muhammad Ali, but that's another story. So, so it was it was fun. And, and I was there. And I was lucky. And um, the big stories, when they happened, particularly on the West Coast, it was me that they assigned to do it. So, so at the right place at the right time in in moments of history it's almost like you're a, a real-time version of the movie character zelig you just seem uh, to be there yeah that's funny that that is that was a great funny movie with woody allen wasn't it yeah oh i mean he was he was there with with some of the monsters as well i think he was with hitler when hitler made his speeches but that was a good movie with mia farrow and i love that film thank you for for saying that Unfortunately, I'm not as rich as Woody Allen, but I don't have his problems. Do you ever look back through your life? Because, I, I mean, I, I, I just hearing the stories you share with us on this show for the few times you've been with us and the stories you share in your books, do you ever sit back and say, my God, I've had a life? Well, I think, I think now I've reached my ancient elderly status 
and I know I'm elderly because in coronavirus times I read I read stories that say the elderly should avoid doing this, and then I think, who the hell are the elderly? And then I check the definition of elderly, and it and it applies to me, and I think, oh my God, I'm elderly. No, sorry, I, I, going on that rampage. Um, the answer to your question is, uh, somebody, a few people have said write write a book, but uh, there's so many other correspondents around the world who've had great experiences. But I think if I tell my story with a, with tongue in cheek, with a bit of humor, with no BS, uh, uh, I mean, you can you can do a story about Joe Average or Jane Average. And if it's if they have good things to say, then it's fascinating. And I happen to have interviewed a lot of people who are famous and they've had terrific things to say. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll hang up from you shortly and start writing my uh, funny memoir. Well, you know, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. And the reason why I say that is, yes, you have had the opportunity, as a lot of people have had, to chronicle history and rub shoulders with some of the famous people uh, that are on this planet and were on this planet. But the difference between you and some of the other people who might have had the same opportunities is, in addition to all of that, you are a great storyteller. So it doesn't make a difference who the people are you're talking about. You're just a great storyteller. So the idea that you've met these interesting people, that's just the icing on the cake or the cherry on top because of the way you can tell a story. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, and, and as you can tell, and I love coming on your show and, t and talking about it, you bring out the best in me and... And I have fun telling these stories. Although, uh, if you talk to my grandkids, they're a little bit bored with it. <laughs> well, um, get them a couple of your books for Christmas. <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, we want to mention your titles again. Uh, Manson Exposed, uh, Reporter's 50-Year Journey into Madness and Murder, and also The Beatles and Me on tour. Ivor, it is an absolute delight to have a chance to talk with you once again, sir. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to talk to you, Peter, and good luck to you, and the important thing is stay healthy in Montreal. Thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you back. Ivor Davis, author of Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder, and also The Beatles and Me on Tour. You can go to my website at thestufffile.com and check out the show number for this program, which is 0575, and you'll find links to Ivor's site, plus links to either amazon.com or amazon.ca, where you can order his books directly. And again, if you want to go back and hear the previous conversations that we had with Ivor, you can go to show number 0287, and also 0521, both of those shows are in the archives. You're listening to The Stuff File Program with me, Peter Anthony Holder. Got something for the mailbag? Drop Peter a line. He'd love to hear from you. Send your email to mailbag at thestufffile.com. And remember, stuff is spelled S-T-U-P-H. That's mailbag at thestufffile.com. Or catch up with him on Twitter or Facebook. There's more Stuff File coming your way in just a few moments.
Peter Anthony Holder here. Often I mention my book, Great Conversations, my interviews with two men on the moon and a galaxy of stars. I also often mention that I'd like you to become a patron of the Stuff File program via Patreon.com. Well, this is my opportunity to combine both of those pleas to you. You've heard me say on many occasions about the myriad of celebrities I've had the chance to talk to that are contained in my book, which is published by Bear Manor Media. You've also heard me mention that some of the celebrities in my book, and many others, can be heard on our page at Patreon.com. Well, if you've been on the fence about joining Patreon, let me try to pull you over to our side. By becoming a patron, you help to make this show an even bigger and better radio experience. And if you do become a regular patron, as a Patreon reward, I'll share with you an electronic version of my book for your e-reader. So join Patreon and claim your copy of Great Conversations, my interviews with two men on the moon and a galaxy of stars. Sign up today at patreon.com slash the stuff file program. From our studios in Montreal, Canada, and going out to the rest of the world, this is the Stuff File Program with Peter Anthony Holder. Now, the Stuff File presents The Gabby Cabby, direct from his yellow mobile conveyance lounge in the city that never sleeps, New York. Once again, here's Peter Anthony Holder. And yes, from his yellow mobile conveyance lounge, we do indeed have the Gabby Cabby himself, Mr. Peter Franklin. How are you doing, sir? Ah, fine. Live from the streets of New York, where we're living, we're all living, the ultimate sitcom, which goes on and on and on. Well, I wanted to ask you, because I know one of the things that's uh, very important to you from a business perspective is the idea that you give tours of the city of New York, your very personalized tour that I hear is just great. I'm assuming there's not a lot of people to give tours to right about now. Would you agree that I'm probably the world's leading authority and proponent of New York City? Absolutely. Having now admitted that, would you ask me if you should come here for a tour? Should I come there for a tour? Absolutely not. <laughs> Don't get near this place. I wouldn't take your money. Keep it in your pocket. No, I mean, New York is, to put it bluntly, it's a real crap house right now. Uh, as my mother used to say, this too shall pass. So it's all going to work out. I mean, those things happen in cycles. But right at this moment, New York really, and I bet you're surprised to hear me say it, it's dirty, filthy, mean spirit. It's just terrible. It really is. Now, I understand speaking, I mean, you said, you're the one who said dirty and mean-spirited, so uh, I'm, I'm going to get to the rodent situation. I understand that while the people have disappeared from the streets, the rats have really come out in force. Yeah, the humankind also. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's, I call it correlations. Nothing in life happens by itself. There's always a connection. So we had the virus, then you have the election, then you have the sharks along the beaches, then you have the fires. I mean, you know, like everything. So what else is new? Well, the city is not clean anymore. It's really filthy, and people are kind of putting their garbage all over the place. And Mr. and Mrs. Rat love that. So now, in addition to all the other problems, we're having a big rat problem. Now, every big city has rat problems. There's no question about it. New York doesn't really, under normal circumstances, have a particularly big problem, but it does now. I mean, I can tell you, people used to say to me, do you ever see any rats? And I said, to be very honest with you, I walk on the streets, or I'm on the streets late in the middle of the night, I never see a rat, so I don't know where they're living. 
But now you do see them on the streets. I mean, it really is. I remember once upon a time, many years ago, the BBC hired me because they were doing a documentary. And they wanted me to take them to places where the rats were. And I said, I can't guarantee that I can find any rats, but you're still going to have to pay me for the day. <laughs> well, we didn't find any rats, so they didn't have their story, but I still got paid for the day. Today, if the BBC calls me up this afternoon, oh, no, I got rats for you. I, I understand, though, uh, I don't know if you saw this story, but there is one way that people are trying to fight the situation uh, with the rats in New York City. Have you heard about the the uh, feral cats, the trap, neuter, and return feral cats? Well, I've heard about it through the years. I mean, there's nothing so unique now. But right now, I think the cats are going to hide out because they're going to get outnumbered and they're going to get eaten. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, now, one of the things that took place just last week, of course, was the national, the uh, the Democratic National Convention, and uh, Kamala Harris being uh, picked as the vice presidential running mate for Joe Biden. Uh, what is the scuttlebutt on the street of New York about Kamala Harris? Well, remember, New York is a Democratic city, and under normal circumstances. I mean, everybody would be cheering and carrying on, and it's wonderful, and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but right now, most people are so discouraged, really, and so emotionally drained with all of the problems that we, and to some extent you folks have had also, that it's like it doesn't have that little extra edge to, okay, let's discuss, let's discuss politics, let's discuss Biden. You know, no, nah, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is we're going to sit down, have a cup of coffee, and both complain about the rats in our neighborhood. So it's really going over like a lead balloon. Also, the fact that, you know, we're not having it on television, you know, like it is with the dancing and the flags. And, you know, it's a, it's a big spectacle every four years. For all intents and purposes, uh, you wouldn't even know that it was going on. So right now, I'd say of the people left in New York, and there's a lot of gone, really, the, the great percentage thinks that Biden is going to now cure all the problems, which to my way of thinking is absolutely ridiculous because the whole reason we and the rest of the world and you people are all in this mess is that we have a bunch of idiots who are running the world, both Democrats, Republicans, socialists, communists, you name it. We really got ourselves a bunch of losers. I don't know how I'm going to explain it to the Martians when they get here. <laughs> I can't remember if we spoke last time uh, or if, if the last time we spoke they had painted the Black Lives Matter uh, banner in front of uh, the Trump Tower, uh, but I know there was a little bit of a brouhaha when it first went there. Uh, now that it's been a while, has that died down, or is it, are people talking about it at all? Or is it an issue? What? Yeah, it is. Well, see, everything that's going on has a hidden agenda. What's what's happening with that has absolutely nothing to do with black lives, black people, black problems, racism, whatever. It's that we have a mayor in the city of New York, guy named de Blasio, total, totally incompetent fool, who hates Trump. So he wasn't doing that on behalf of black people. He wasn't doing it on behalf of anything. He's doing it just to annoy the hell out of Trump, which it does, of course, because now there isn't a day that goes by that people who love Trump will try and paint over the sign that says black lives uh, matter. But I think if you and I, if you came to New York City with me and we walked the streets of New York, walking up specifically and said to the average black person, what do you think about the sign of, you know, it says Black Lives Matter in front of Trump's house? 
they wouldn't know what you're even talking about. Mm. Now, I understand, getting a little into the weeds of the news here, that a 17-year-old boy has been charged with robbing the teen son of the NYPD's anti-terror czar near Central Park? Yeah, like like one of these inspectors. It's a guy named John Miller. He used to be a reporter for many years, and then he switched over to the dark side, and he did public relations for the New York City Police Department, and now they made him a commissioner in charge of terrorism. So his kid is riding a bike in Central Park, and he gets accosted by other kids who rob him. And that was the story in the papers and on the radio, and everybody thought it was so terrible, terrible. Being the good reporter that I am, your chief correspondent in New York City, I figured there got to be more to the story than that. And I did a little research, and it turned out that when the kid was robbed, he had $400 in cash in his pocket and a very expensive bike, which they took also. And I thought to myself, how many 13-year-old kids do you know, whether their father is a police commissioner or not, walking around with that kind of money in your pocket? I would venture to say, if I asked you right now, you could tell me to the penny how much money you have in your pocket. And I'm sure it's not 400 in cash. If it is, can you lend me some? It's not even 400 Canadian. <laughs> right. <laughs> so moving... I, I would have said, I would interview, I say on behalf of Peter Anthony Holder, because I'm his chief correspondent, what the heck was the kid doing with that kind of money in his pocket? Well, I, I, I understand that's not necessarily that far away. He was in Central Park, right? Yeah. Uh, so it was either one of two things, I'm guessing. It was either cash for a drug deal or he wanted to take a Gabby Cabby tour. Yeah, well, you see, that's why you're such a good reporter, because I thought of the the, uh, the drug deal also. And uh, I hadn't brought that up because, you know, I didn't want to, like, accuse the kid of doing something or other. But uh, also, you know, you've heard the expression that chickens come home to roost. I'm not anti-cop or anything, but I got to tell you something. When crime hits a cop, then, you know, and they're all walking around with big guns, they can know how the rest of us feel with. I can't ride my bicycle in Central Park now. Mm. I absolutely can't. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't ride a bicycle anyplace. Well, if crime hits a cop, doesn't it usually hit them in outside of the five boroughs since most of them don't live in New York? Yeah, that's a union thing. They've done that for years, which I think is terrible. It's also, they do that with school teachers. My way of thinking was that if you work in the city for the city, you ought to live in the city. And many years ago, when I was on the local school board that would pick principals in our district, I was told by the Board of Education that when you make your judgment, you can't hold it against the potential principal that he lives in the suburbs. In other words, you can't think in your mind, I'm not voting for this guy unless he lives in the city. Well, I'm here to confess to everybody and your nice listeners that that's exactly what I did. If I saw that you didn't live in New York, your chances of getting my vote, forget about it. I want you to live in New York if you work in New York. I don't need an outside force to come in to uh, take care of me. So there, I just made a public confession. But no, uh, that's, that's a big problem. Cops don't live there. And they could solve that problem very simple by saying, at least starting tomorrow morning, if you want to be a New York City policeman, you got to live here. You can't live out in the suburbs. Because you know what happened during 9-11? Would you like to have a dirty a dirty little secret which can become a Peter Anthony Holder uh, exclusive at this point? Sure, go ahead. When the police department started calling the cops in the suburbs about 9-11 because they wanted everybody to come to work, 
every cop, not everyone, most of the cops in the suburbs whisper to their their wives, tell them I'm not here. Wow. Wow. Um, Look at all these exclusives I'm giving you. <laughs> Uh, on the topic of uh, people under the service of the city, uh, I understand the New York City bedbug-sniffing dogs are preparing for retirement. And who knew there were New York City bedbug-sniffing dogs? Well, that was something that was used by the health department. And the reason why that whole thing, for a while there was a whole bunch of stories about people having bedbugs in their hotel rooms. And then they discovered even that a couple of people brought them with them, you know, like in a little jaw. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, that is so diabolical. Even me in my warped mind would never think of checking into a hotel with a jar of bed bugs, pouring them on the bed and then complaining. Well, there's no hotels in New York anymore, so there's no, no bed bugs because they're not changing the sheets because there's nobody using the room. And right at this point, in addition to me telling you not to come to New York, I certainly would tell you if you're coming to New York, bring your own sheets. <laughs> no, nah, but that you don't have a problem because we'd let you stay at our house. I, I much appreciate that. So, so the hotels—they're—they're they're not busy. Uh, you're not busy giving tours. What are you doing during the course of the day? Are you just driving around the city in your cab, singing memories? No, I'm glad you asked that. First of all, the only tours that I give now are business tours. Like, for instance, let's say you were coming to New York for a documentary about the state of New York. And your radio station would hire me to, you know, do the tour. But if you're just just an average man who wants to come to New York for a tour, I wouldn't do it. So, I mean, that's how I'm surviving, because I still am the leading authority on New York City. But, uh, you know, it's a a whole different ballgame now. But like I say, and I'm quoting her like crazy, my mother always said, and this too shall pass. And it will. It'll get back okay. But at least for the next, I bet you, a year, forget about the virus. And the vaccine, uh, New York is a dead, dead cookie. I'd say give my regards to Broadway, but it's still dark and will be until at least next year. On that cheery note, we should just mention the fact that uh, you always have information people can check out on your website at Peter at uh, the, the website rather is Gabby.com. People can send you an email to Peter at Gabby.com. And by the way, while at the website, uh, you can check out. Uh, your your daily stories that you put up and all the other information that's up there and uh, little also clips. Also the food, the food. And also the food. You know, the Miss, Mrs. Gabby's Kitchen where she gives you recipes to eat. Absolutely. That's why I didn't answer your question before. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what I'm saying is important. Uh, what people are doing is cooking. Everybody's cooking now because there's no going out to restaurants. So my wife, who puts this website out called Mrs. Gabby's Kitchen, she's not selling anything, so don't anybody get nervous. It gives you recipes about gluten-free, veggie-free, but everybody's cooking. That's the new thing. It's either cooking or sex. That's all there is left to do. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, on that note, on that happy note, a happier note, uh, again, people can find information by going to your website, Gabby.com. Peter, thank you very much for being on the program with us once again. My thanks to you. Bye. The Stuff File. And we're just about a racetrack for this edition of the Stuff File program. We do have one more item here on a show that is also heard 
on Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. And that one item would be the idiot of the day. And now it's time for the strange things adults do. This stuff all presents the idiot of the day. A Chicago man is accused of live-streaming himself while he used a hammer to break into an ATM. 20-year-old Aaron Neal was charged with felony counts of burglary and criminal damage to property. The alleged damage occurred during looting. Police said Neal live-streamed the alleged incident with his cell phone on Facebook, smiling at the camera before hitting the machine with a hammer. Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown said police posted video of the ATM damage on their website and within 90 minutes, members of the community helped officers to identify him. While speaking to the local NBC affiliate, Neil was asked about his response to people who saw the video of him allegedly breaking the ATM and were not happy about it. His response was, I'm not a looter. I normally don't loot. That's not what I do. I'm a working man. Well, not anymore, you are. If I were still in television upon hearing him say, I'm not a looter, that's when I would say, let's go to the videotape. I mean, why? Oh, why? Would you think that live streaming on Facebook, your act of looting, would be a good idea? One reason, and one reason only, you're an idiot! Gee, I'm only a kid, but even I know you're an idiot. And that's it for this edition of The Stuff File program number 0575. Hope you enjoyed it. The website is thestufffile.com. And once again, stuff is spelled S-T-U-P-H, where you'll find information and links on all of our guests by going to the weekly Stuff File page. Just look for the corresponding program number. And once again, that's 0575. Email me at peter at thestufffile.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter as P.A. Holder. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon.com or you can become a patron of the program. Hope to see you back here for our next show on the air, online, or as a download. We're coming to you from everywhere, including CyberStationUSA.com, Verdant Square Radio, KDXRadio.com, Airchecker, Canada's number one radio source, PCJ Radio International and its partner stations, TrueTalkRadio.com, downloaded on Apple or Google Podcasts, streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, and over the air on World FM in New Zealand, MediaCore in Singapore, and WSTJ in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. That's it. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Stuff File Program with Peter Anthony Holder, a presentation of Flying Fish Communications. I'm your announcer, your name here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, this is Ben Patrick Johnson. What am I being paid for this? What? You're flipping kidding me. Okay, that's it. Turn off the microphone. <laughs>